Imagine you are in trouble. Things are looking grim, and you aren't sure what to do. If only you could think of a way out. A cherished Christmas tradition, Handel's Messiah was written at a time of crisis in Handel's life. It marked a turning point in his career and went on to become perhaps the most performed piece of classical music of all time. Join us in this episode of the Houston Symphonies On The Music as we learn the secrets of its phenomenal success. I'm Aurelie Demeray. And I am Carlos Botero. Welcome to this guided tour of Handel's Messiah. By the time George Frederick Handel began composing Messiah, he had already enjoyed a long career as one of London's leading composers. This success, however, had only come after a long journey through many lands. He was born in 1685 in the city of Halle, in what would one day become central eastern Germany. The year was a good one for composers. Johann Sebastian Bach and Domenico Scarlatti were born just months after Handel. His parents christened him Georg Friedrich Handel, and his father, a successful doctor, planned a career in law for his son. When young Georg began to show interest in music, his father forbade him to study it. For some time, Handel had to practice the clavichord in secret. It was only by chance that at age seven, he performed for the Duke of Saxe Weissenfels, who helped convince his father to allow him to pursue music. Carlos, it seemed he managed to overrule his father. Yes, he did. He soon developed into a remarkable composer. After the successful premiere of his first operas in Germany, the 21-year-old Handel was invited by a member of the Medici family to journey south to Italy, the destination of aspiring artists, composers, and other professionals from all over Europe. There, he was known as Giorgio Frederico, or even Il Sassone, the Saxon. He quickly mastered the intricacies of the Italian style, composing hit operas and acclaimed sacred works. By the age of 25, he was looking for new musical frontiers to conquer. He found them in England, where he flourished, becoming a leading composer of Italian operas, cantatas, concerti, keyboard suites, anthems, and even water music for the King's Barge on the Thames. An astute businessman, he amassed a fortune through the profit from his compositions and his investments. Ultimately, he settled at 25 Brook Street in London, and he was known as George Frederick for the rest of his life. By the time he began work on Messiah, Handel had been in England for 31 years. He was a famous personality in London, as well known for his notorious temper as for his extraordinary musical talent. According to one famous anecdote, he once threatened to throw a difficult singer out a window. Charles Burney, an important writer on music in the 18th century, described Handel as follows. There was a sudden flash of intelligence, wit, and good humor, beaming in his countenance, which I hardly ever saw in any other. Handel's appetites for food and drink were also legendary. Handel had an outgoing and gregarious personality, and he was a generous philanthropist who donated substantial sums to orphanages, a fund for decayed musicians, and other charities. But on the practical side, Handel was a businessman. Though he enjoyed great success, Handel's career in London was not without its ups and downs. 
in part due to a political spat between the King and the Prince of Wales, a new competing Italian opera company was established in London in 1733. The rarefied audience for opera was not large enough to support two opera companies, and Handel's finances became increasingly strained. Just when Handel's debts were beginning to loom ominously, he received a package at his house on Brook Street. One of his biggest fans had sent him a gift. Do you know what this was? As a matter of fact, I do. It was from Charles Jennings, who was the heir of an immense fortune. He was also a man of strong convictions. Religiously, he was a devout High Church Anglican. Politically, he refused to take an oath of allegiance to the Hanoverian monarchs who had inherited the throne after Queen Anne had died without an heir. This barred him from a career in public life, so instead he pursued his interests in literature, scripture, and especially music. Handel was his favorite composer, and Jennings had frequently collaborated with him, using his literary talents to provide Handel with texts that would fire the composer's imagination. In a letter to a friend, Jennings wrote that, I hope I shall persuade Handel to set another scripture collection I have made for him and perform it for his own benefit in Passion Week. I hope he will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it, that the composition may excel all his former compositions as the subject excels every other subject. The subject is Messiah. So this is how Messiah came into being. Messiah is a Hebrew word meaning the anointed one a savior whom Christians believe to be Jesus. In Christendom, there could be no grander subject. It was this scripture collection that arrived on Handel's doorstep. With his thorough knowledge of the Bible, Jennings had picked out Bible verses from the Old and New Testaments and arranged them into a libretto or booklet that he hoped Handel would use to write a great masterpiece, an oratorio. By Handel's time, oratorios had evolved into grand works for vocal soloists, chorus, and orchestra that usually told the story from the Bible. Oratorios were basically operas on sacred subjects, but without staging and costumes. Now, Orly, this was not Handel's first oratorio, was it? That's right. Handel had already written nearly a dozen oratorios, including Saul, Esther, and Israel and Egypt, by the time he began Messiah. Some were in English, and even some used libretti provided by Jennings himself. Handel had basically invented the genre of English oratorio. He had few, if any, precedents. Handel lavished his oratorios with his musical creativity and keen dramatic instincts, using oratorios to add variety to his operatic seasons and, of course, bring in much-needed extra income. Carlos, did it take Handel a long time to compose Messiah? Not at all. Upon reading Jennings' text, Handel was struck by inspiration. He finished the first draft of Messiah in only 24 days. While remarkable, this intense pace of composition was by no means unusual for Handel. As a busy opera composer and producer, he often had to work fast. Handel would tweak Messiah nearly every time he was performed during his lifetime, tightening up a few numbers and adjusting the score to show off the talents or hide the defects of particular singers. Nevertheless, 
The draft he finished in 1741 contained nearly all the music that has come down to us today. Endel probably wasn't sure what he would do with Messiah when he finished it. He had an invitation to spend the next season in Dublin, but he may still have been contemplating sticking it out in London. There was one thing that he had likely already decided. He would use Messiah to enrich not himself, but the charitable causes that lay nearest to his heart. He packed away the score for safekeeping, knowing that it would come in handy soon. Did he realize that he had just completed what would become the most performed piece of classical music in history? A work that would alter the history of music itself? Probably not, but listening to the music, it is easy to understand why it did. Like an opera, Messiah begins with an overture for orchestra alone. This overture has two parts. First, there is a slow, severe opening marked by long, short rhythms. In the dark key of E minor, this opening creates a serious, solemn atmosphere. It is soon followed by a second, faster section. This faster section is a kind of music known as a fugue. In a fugue, multiple melodies sound simultaneously. Ideally, each melody should be interesting to listen to on its own, while at the same time fitting perfectly together with the others. The art of weaving different melodies together is known as counterpoint, and in fugue, this technique produces a kaleidoscopic texture called polyphony, from the Greek words meaning many sounds. These many sounds are usually united by one main musical idea that appears periodically in all of the different parts. This main idea is called the fugue's subject. You can always recognize a fugue by the way it begins. First, the subject appears alone. It then appears in each of the other parts, one by one. With its relentless activity, this fugue creates an air of drama and anticipation. The overture ends, and the dark mood of E minor is replaced by a warm E major. A voice calls out. The tenor banishes the darkness of the overture with reassuring words from the book of Isaiah. Comfort ye, my people. So this is what is referred to as part the first. Genesis divided his libretto into three parts. The first part focuses on the birth of Jesus, the second on his death and resurrection, and the third on his reign in heaven. Each part is then divided into pieces of music known as numbers because they are numbered in the score. There are three main types of numbers in Messiah, recitatives, arias, and choruses. The simplest type is the recitative. Derived from the same root as the English word recite, Recitative is a term from Italian opera used to describe a kind of sing-speaking. Recitative is useful to opera composers because it allows them to get through lots of texts fairly quickly. 
Shall we demonstrate, Carlos? Sure. Here is a famous text from Messiah. Here's how it sounds, just read plainly from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And here is how it sounds played in Handel's music. See, even though she's singing the words, it's very conversational, almost like she's speaking. That's right. As any opera lover can tell you, sometimes recitatives can feel a bit workmanlike, leaving you impatient for the next melody to appear. But Handel, ever the master of marrying words with music, gives us some of Messiah's most memorable moments in recitatives like Comfort Ye My People. The second kind of number you'll find in Messiah is the aria, often translated into English as an air, or even just a plain old song. Unlike recitatives, arias often have only a few words which are repeated as the music evolves. In opera, when an aria begins, time stops, and the character who is singing tells the audience how he or she feels. Arias are also more melodic than recitatives and give the singers a chance to show off their vocal abilities. But there's more than just one type of voice, right, Carlos? That's right. In general, operatic voices can be arranged by type on a sliding scale. At one end, you have voices that maximize power and endurance, the ability to sing louder and longer. At the other end, you have voices that are very agile and can sing very fast leaps and runs. In Handel's day, vocal agility was prized above all. The fast passages of vocal fireworks that wowed Handel's audiences are known as coloratura, which is Italian for coloring. While Handel certainly gives his soloists many coloratura passages in Messiah, they are less about vocal display for its own sake than emotional expression and word painting. Word painting refers to the habit composers have of writing music that depicts the literal meaning of the words in a song, and it's one of Messiah's most charming pleasures. Word painting is perhaps best understood with a few examples. One of the most famous appears in the first aria of Messiah, the tenor's Every Valley Shall Be Exalted. Every valley. On the word exalted, Handel writes a long coloratura run that gradually rises. The valleys are being exalted, and so is the melody. The word mountain is on a high note. And the word low is on a low note. The word crooked is sung to crooked wavering pitches. And the word straight is on a straight long note. The word rough hits a rough spot. And the word plain is set to long smooth notes. i
As you can see, Handel had a lot of fun with this. Another example comes in the bass recitative, Thus saith the Lord. At the words, and I will shake, Handel writes a coloratura run that literally makes the bass's voice shake. And I will shake. And I will shake. There are many, many other examples of text painting in Messiah, and it's always fun when you can spot one. And, Carlos, there are also different voice ranges, right? That's correct, Orly. The arias in Messiah are sung by vocal solids, who can be classified into four types by vocal range. We have already heard a bit from the tenor, the high male voice, and the bass, the low male voice. There is also a soprano part for a high female voice, and an alto part, which can be sung by a low female voice, or an extra high male voice. An extra high male voice? But how is that possible? There are several methods for producing a high male voice, but in Handel's day, the most popular was castration. Castration? The practice of castrating voice in order to preserve their high singing voices can be traced back to the Byzantine Empire, but the height of the craze was in Handel's day. Known as castrati, boys subjected to the surgery did not go through puberty. Not only did they retain their high singing voices, but the lack of male hormones during their teenage years affected the way their bodies grew, giving them unusually long limbs and large rib cages. Their unusually large torsos provided unmatched resonating chambers for their voices. With intensive musical training, the best castrati were able to produce seemingly endless streams of coloratura passage work. practice was always controversial. Nevertheless, Handel wrote dozens of operatic roles for Castrati. While no Castrati took part in Messiah's premiere, the castrato Gaetano Guadagni left his mark on the score of Messiah at a performance in 1750. Handel rewrote, but who may abide the day of his coming for Guadagni, including some incendiary coloratura for the words, for he is like a refiner's fire. Almost everyone performs this version today. Thankfully, there is a much more humane alternative. In the benighted days when only men and boys were allowed to sing in church choirs, the alto parts were often sung by men who specialized in singing falsetto. These singers are known as countertenors, and today countertenor soloists often perform the many operatic roles that were written for castrati. At the premiere of Messiah, some of the alto solos were sung by a female alto, while others were sung by a countertenor. Both casting choices are as authentic as can be. So, Carlos, we've talked about recitatives and arias. The last type of number you will hear in Messiah is the chorus. Handel's choral numbers display great variety and range from simple, direct statements to complex fugues. To tell us more about the choruses in Handel's Messiah, we spoke to someone who knows as much about choral singing as anyone. My name is Betsy Cook Weber. I'm the director of the Houston Symphony Chorus. Handel, of course, 
um, is one of the world's great composers. In terms of his writing for chorus, he really knew the voice well. Um, each part fits the voice. So although the music is super challenging, once you learn the pitches and rhythms, it's possible to sing it very beautifully. The alto parts are almost always too low in all of his choral music because Handel was writing for men who were singing as countertenors. Um, his music is also super fun. In the first part where we're singing about the nativity of Christ, everything is joyful and light and kind of fluffy. Perhaps the most famous chorus in part the first is, For unto us a child is born. This joyful number comes from a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that foretells the coming of the Messiah. Handel begins with simple melodic ideas that clearly set the words. This leads to more complex polyphonic writing featuring a long coloratura. The number builds up to an unforgettable exclamation of praise. Here is Betsy again. Foreign to Us and Child is Born may be one of my favorite choruses. I remember as a girl listening to our Time Life recording, and I would just sing along with it. I think lots of people do. It's challenging because it has so much coloratura for the chorus. So now you know the basic building blocks of Messiah, recitatives, arias, and choruses. There is one more section in part the first that we would like to highlight, the numbers that describe the shepherds in the fields. Here is the scene. According to the Gospel of Luke, an angel appeared to shepherds who were watching their flocks in a nearby field to tell them the good news of Jesus' birth. Handel's depiction of this annunciation to the shepherds is one of the most vivid moments in Messiah. The scene begins with a purely instrumental number that Handel calls a pifa. Pifa is an antiquated term for a kind of Italian bagpipe that was often played by shepherds. You can hear how Handel imitates this instrument by listening to the drone in the bass instruments. This gentle music instantly conjures images of an evening in the countryside with shepherds watching their flocks. This pifa goes directly into the next number, the recitative for the soprano solos, with text from the Gospel of Luke. When the angel appears, the violins begin a shimmering accompaniment figure. Could this be heavenly light or the fluttering of angels' wings? the chorus in the guise of a multitude of angels sings glory to God. It is an instance of Handel's remarkable ability to paint pictures with music and a favorite moment in part the first. Now we turn to part the second. The mood darkens as we turn from the joyful story of Jesus' birth to the tragic one of his death, known as the Passion. 
According to the Gospels, after a life of preaching and performing miracles, Jesus had unfortunately made some enemies. Members of the religious establishment, called Pharisees, saw him as a threat and plotted against him. With help from the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, they arranged for him to be put to death by crucifixion, a cruel but then common method of public execution in which the condemned was nailed to a wooden cross and left to bleed to death. After the crucifixion, Jesus' body was buried in a tomb. On the third day, his followers discovered that the tomb was empty. Jesus later appeared to tell them of the ultimate miracle. He had ascended into heaven and conquered death. I hear an immediate change in tone when the chorus opens part the second with the words, Behold the Lamb of God. The slower tempo, long short of rhythms and minor key recall the beginning of the overture. The words come from a verse in the Gospel of John. Behold the lamp of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This is followed by one of Messiah's most moving arias. In He Was Despised, the alto soloist reflects on Jesus' public rejection and torture during his time in Pontius Pilate's custody. The Gospels describe Pilate presenting a crowd with two prisoners, Jesus and a known murderer. He asks them to choose one to be released. Under the malign influence of the Pharisees, the crowd chooses to save the murderer but condemn Jesus to crucifixion. He is then taken away and flogged before being crucified. The alto sings, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The vocal melody is full of poignant pauses, as if it is only with difficulty that the singer can speak these words. The word grief, in particular, is given special attention. The music becomes more intense in a contrasted section. As the strings play a driving rhythmic accompaniment, the alto sings, he gave his back to the smiters. And his cheeks to them that plucked off his hair. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. From shame and spitting. It is the chorus, however, that has some of the most dramatic numbers in part the second. Betsy Cook Weber explains. Probably my favorite choruses are in that second part because the choral writing has so much variety in it. Um, there's, there are a number of instances where we are um, like the angry crowd, at times really mocking uh, what is happening to Jesus, and then at times being very repentant about what happened to Jesus. So, Behold the Lamb of God is very, very sorrowful. But at the same time, all we like sheep, where it, it talks about mankind just running hither and yon with, in, in a silly way, 
it's almost gallows humor because the, the chorus is very funny until the very end, which has one of the most poignant moments in the whole book to me. It, um, Handel uses the, the words, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. So the chorus with these sheep running around feverishly just screeches to a halt and the point of the chorus comes uh, right out in this beautiful, beautiful adagio moment. And then it, sometimes the chorus is very judgmental. The chorus, he trusted in God, really uh, derides Christ's trust that God would save him in the end. It, it's very contrapuntal, so there are only a very few moments when the chorus sings the same words at the same time. There's also a passage in here that I adore where the tenors sing a bit of coloratura on an awe vowel talking about how if the Lord delights in Jesus, then the Lord would save Jesus. And the tenors are clearly laughing with scorn. It's very um, effective, and I think our tenors do a terrific job of it. They can be very sarcastic group when they choose to be. The very end of the chorus, when in typical Handel fashion, it just comes to almost a screeching halt and at a very slow tempo, the chorus sings, If He Delight in Him. Part II is an old doom and gloom, though. As the singers turn from contemplating the passion of Jesus to his resurrection, the mood brightens. A series of numbers build to the climatic finale of Part II, which is the most famous music Handel ever wrote, the Hallelujah Chorus. Orly. Have you ever sang this? I certainly have, many times during my day as a chorister. Written in the bright key of D major to allow for drums and trumpets to join the orchestra, the Hallelujah Chorus has become a truly iconic piece of music. According to legend, when King George II heard the Hallelujah Chorus at the London premiere, he was so moved that he rose to his feet. Of course, then everybody else in the audience was obliged to do the same, because when the king stands, you stand. While this story is charming, it probably isn't true. No contemporary reports mention a royal presence at the London premiere. Nevertheless, as early as the 1770s, the tale had inspired a tradition of standing for the Hallelujah Chorus that continues to this day, although I'm sure there are always a few anti-monarchists who remain seated. A celebration of Jesus' resurrection, the Hallelujah Chorus has entered popular culture as a symbol of the joy of salvation, appearing in countless movies, TV shows, and commercials. What is the secret to its success? Betsy has a few theories. Everyone loves the Hallelujah Chorus. I asked our Houston Symphony Chorus members last night, what is it about the Hallelujah Chorus that you love? And I got some great answers. Well, it's the message, and of course it is. Uh, King of kings and Lord of lords. To people who are devout, it, it, the message is very resonant. It's also, one member pointed out, it's very melodic. The motives are just very memorable and they repeat a lot and, you know, everyone can hum 
uh, the opening bars of Hallelujah Chorus. Also, the chorus moves in sequence. It, you know, it, it uh, handle kind of modulates higher over and over again, and you get to the point where you just wonder how high can they go, and the sopranos are singing above the rest of the chorus that is very thrilling and, and exciting. Ultimately, it is the brilliance of Handel's music that makes the Hallelujah Chorus so memorable. Now we have arrived at part the third, which focuses on Jesus' reign in heaven, the belief in life everlasting, and the end of the world with the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It begins with a soprano aria that is an affirmation of faith. I know that my Redeemer liveth. A remarkable pair of numbers featuring the bass soloist set verses from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, in which he describes the resurrection of the bodies of believers at the end of the world. In the recitative, the bass sings, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Behold, I tell you a Sure enough, the aria that follows features one of the most famous trumpet solos in the repertoire, representing the last trumpet that will herald the coming of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Like part the second, part the third builds up to a grand final chorus, this time a fugue on a single word, Amen, of course. The music, in all its polyphonic complexity, expresses a fervent joy and faith. The singers in the chorus, on the other hand, might have some other emotions as well, according to Betsy Cook Weber. I believe it's the most difficult chorus in the book. It's the last chorus in the book. It has amazing cross rhythms and a lot of uh, many altered pitches, so they have to really thread the needle very carefully in terms of pitch and rhythm. They have to sing with a buoyant approach, so I'm always very, very relieved when the Amen Chorus comes off well. It's a, a masterful ending to a masterful work. The premiere certainly did come off well. And impressed with the opportunities another London season might provide, Handel accepted the offer to go to Dublin, Ireland. There, he organized a series of concerts at the Music Hall on Fish Amble Street that met with great acclaim. For the grand finale of the series in April, he unveiled Messiah. The chorus was comprised of choristers from Christ Church and St. Patrick's Cathedral the latter of which were reluctantly given permission to perform by none other than the famous satirist Jonathan Swift, who was the cathedral's dean. The public anticipation leading up to the premiere was immense. 
tickets sold so well that advertisements advised ladies not to wear their hoop skirts and gentlemen to leave their swords at home so that there will be more room in concert hall. <laughs> when the day came, the reaction was everything Handel could have hoped. You can imagine the scene from a description offered by Charles Burney. Handel wore an enormous white wig, and when things went well at the oratorio, it had a certain nod or vibration, which manifested his pleasure and satisfaction. One review read, On Tuesday last, Mr. Handel's sacred grand oratorio, The Messiah, was performed at the new music hall in Fishamble Street. The best judges allowed it to be the most finished piece of music. Words are wanting to express the exquisite delight it afforded to the admiring, crowded audience. The sublime, the grand, and the tender, adapted to the most elevated, majestic, and moving words, conspired to transport and charm the ravished heart and ear. It is but justice to Mr. Handel that the world should know he generously gave the money arising from this grand performance to be equally shared by the Society for Relieving Prisoners, the Charitable Infirmary, and Mercer's Hospital, for which they will ever greatly remember his name. When Handel returned to London, the public realized how much they had missed his music, and his position as one of London's leading composers was soon restored. While generally successful, the London premiere of Messiah was not without controversy. There were some who questioned the appropriateness of a work with such a sacred subject being performed in a place as profane as a theater. These squibbles were swept aside at a later charitable performance at London's Foundling Hospital, where fundraising performances of Messiah soon became a yearly tradition. Indeed, Endel had so much success with Messiah that he never wrote another opera again, dedicating the end of his career to writing more oratorios on biblical subjects. Messiah in particular proved so popular that people wanted to hear it again and again. Little by little, performances popped up all over England as its fame spread. Even after Handel's death in 1759, people continued to perform Messiah each year. In an age when music was largely seen as disposable and there was little interest in music of the past, this was unprecedented. In Handel's day, there was no canon of great composers and masterpieces. No composer expected his music to outlive him. Handel's Messiah began to change all that. It is perhaps the oldest continuously performed piece of music in the repertoire. In fact, many years after Handel's death, Charles Burney reported, this great work has been heard in all parts of the kingdom with increasing reverence and delight. It has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan, and enriched succeeding managers of the oratorios more than any single production in this or any other country. In all the centuries that have passed since its premiere, it has never gone out of style. But wait, there is one more question that has been puzzling me. The first performances of Messiah took place in the springtime near Easter. How did Messiah become a Christmas tradition? In the piece's early days, Messiah was performed at various times of the year, including sometimes at Christmas. Although it was most often performed near Easter, which fits with the story of the Passion in Part the Second, performing it at Christmas made sense too, given that Part the First is all about the Christmas story. 
The tradition of performing Messiah every Christmas, however, likely started with the first complete American performance of Messiah in Boston in 1818, which was given on Christmas Day. The tradition of performing Messiah at Christmas spread throughout the United States and, eventually, the world. Every December, there are thousands of performances of Messiah given by professional and amateur ensembles across the globe. Perhaps for this reason, year after year, surveys of orchestral programming list Messiah as the most programmed piece of music, making it possibly the most performed piece of classical music in history. On the Music is a production of the Houston Symphony. For more episodes and a complete list of credits, please visit houstonsymphony.org slash onthemusic. Thank you for listening.